This is Retail Retold, the story of how that store ended up in your neighborhood. I'm your host, Chris Ressa, and I invite you to join my conversation with some of the retail industry's biggest influencers. This podcast is brought to you by DLC Management. First off, uh, thank you everyone for coming, uh, and thank you to the American Dream for hosting this here. This was a tremendous experience for those who have not been here and for those who have been here. So uh, if you could give a round of applause for American Dream. Our tour guides were fantastic today. Um, thank you to ICSE for you know making this happen and all the volunteers who helped do that. There's a bunch of you here today. Uh, thank you to our sponsors who helped uh, pay for this. This is fantastic. And um, Thank you to everyone for coming today. Um, you know, the New York region uh, for ICSE has been one of the slowest to come back. Uh, this is, we've done a lot less events than the other regions in the country. I sit on the marketplace volunteer leadership calls and I'm listening to some of the things that are going on in the other surrounding markets around the country. And it's pretty astonishing. And so um, if anyone is interested in volunteering for ICSE to increase the networking exposure for the New York metro area that goes upstate New York, Long Island, Westchester, New Jersey, Fairfield County, please reach out to me. I would uh, love for anyone to try and participate because uh, we are trying to get uh, New York really humming again with all the events that they once did. So thank you. Um, okay, well today, we have a special guest, Glenn Refrano. Uh, for those who don't know, Glenn is the chairman of ICSC. And Glenn is a former CEO of uh, Verit. He was, uh, a, a while back, he started, founded a company called O'Connor Capital. He's the president, president CEO of Cushman. President CEO of Cushman Wakefield. He was the CEO of Central Properties, which was owned by an Australian company. So he is a legend in the industry, and I am excited that he was willing to do this today. So everybody, please give a round of applause for Dr. Uh And so we're going to do things a little, a little different uh, today, a little different topic. You know, Glenn's experience is tremendous, right? He's been the CEO of Multiple REITs, a brokerage company, a private group, and he's been uh, involved in mergers and acquisitions. He's been involved in many different business cycles. So we're going to have this fireside chat uh, from the perspective of the former CEO of a public REIT, um, a little bit less as the chair of ICSC, to give everyone some you know, market insights as to what's going on in the world today. So thank you for being here, Glenn. So uh, let's get started. All right. So Glenn, the, the markets today are, you know, uh, I think everyone's been excited by some of the retail demand, uh, but there's a lot of noise out there. We have geopolitical stuff, the capital markets with interest rates. So to get started, give everybody a bit of optimism. If you were, if you were running a real estate, retail real estate team today, what would you tell them to give them some optimism today? Well, I think the first first form of optimism I give is that this mall got built and it looks like it's leasing. Uh, that is unbelievable. Uh, well, Laura, who took us around, done a great job. And I, it, it, I, was, I was involved with O'Connor Capital, as Chris mentioned, and we built Menlo Park Mall. Uh, we rebuilt it. Macy's there, we knocked it down, put Nordstrom in, we re rebuilt it. That was in the early 90s. We had a construction manager who we lost to go to the mills to, to build this. That was in the early 90s, and Mills already did a, at least three or four years of spade work before they stole our construction manager. Could you imagine how long it's taken to build this mall? So I'm pretty optimistic that it's here, it was great to run around, and it's terrific. Uh, in terms of retail itself, I, you, know what, you know the word I hate the most, commercial? I hate that word because I read all the time about how commercial real estate is in trouble. What is, I don't know what commercial means. We're retail. Now, no offense to office, but I think it means office, right? 
and it's not so bad not not to be at the back of the house because retail has gotten some big advantages over the last five years and and it's not just in my view um, anecdotal stuff about the pandemic hit people wanted to get out so retail's doing fine I'm, I'm sure that's helpful laura you mentioned that here i'm sure that's been helpful but there were real reasons why we're in good shape i'll start out with the basic occupancies are high across all i'll start with public companies so i watch the public market closer chris has a better understanding of private but at icsc we have both public and private as you know so if i listen to everybody at icsc occupancies are pretty well are pretty good and higher than almost they've ever been in the last six or eight years. We have pricing power. We can actually get tenants to pay rent. It's terrific. People are feeling good about operating their shopping centers and they should feel good. And it's not just because the pandemic came and went. If you go back in time, and ICSE has a lot of really good data. You know, from my standpoint, if someone asks, when did the retail real estate fall from grace I know exactly when it started to fall from grace. First quarter of 2017. And if you look at what happened in the first quarter of 2017, we had more store closings in the first quarter of 17 than we had all of 2016. And if you look at the second quarter of 2017, those two quarters, we had more store closings than 15 and 16. That's when the everybody thought the tipping point of e-commerce was here. And we really started to have problems. I, I was in the public market all our analysts only did was pound us all day saying you're dead retail is dead and now what are you going to do next well what happened was the market works what did we do next we stopped building how many square feet do we have in this country in two, the first quarter of 2017 i know 7.5 billion square feet how much square feet do we have in this country starting 2023 7.5 billion square feet, right? That is a very important number. Population has grown at 1% a year each of those years. Sales, retail sales have grown 30% from 2017 to 2023. 2021 was 18% of that, but, but we've grown. So if you look at what's going on in our business, we were in trouble. We did have overbuilding. We did have issues with tenants that could not keep up with e-commerce. But we stopped. Maybe we stopped because the bank stopped us. Whatever the reasons, because we build the bejesus out of everything, right? We do that. But we stopped. And we didn't build any more square footage. And we grew into the square footage we needed. And in fact, probably overgrew into that. And that's why when you talk to retailers today who hadn't opened stores between 17 and 2020, they're behind. And they have to have more stores to, to, to manufacture their businesses. And e-commerce, which was a problem, and we will talk a little bit about this later, um, has been settled. They know what's going on. I mean, they're not, you think the tenants just sit back, there's nothing more. I think the retail tenant is the most capitalistic form of business in the United States. Every day someone votes as to whether or not they buy something in that store or not. And they change, and they change, and they change. And tenants that needed to change from 2017 to 2023 did. And those that didn't change, they gone, right? That's, that's capitalism. It's a harsh system, but that's what happens. And so we're in pretty good shape today. We should be optimistic, not because people just want to come back, because there was a discipline, however it happened in our industry, which caused us to go from 23 square foot per person to 21. And when you have 340 million, million people, that's a lot of square footage that we don't have now. So I feel pretty good because the business is sound from an operating basis. And, and you know, we will talk a little bit about the capital markets, which is the down. It's not the business, it's the capital markets. But I feel really good about retail. Today. I love that. Um, so, you know, I wonder that 7.5 billion square foot, one of the things that I talk about a lot is the, there's a lot of, retail space that got repurposed into whether it was self-storage or an industrial. I, does that get into, do you know, does that get into those numbers? Because I think there was a lot of space, not only not built, but taken offline as well. I, it's a good point, Chris. It's a combination. In that 7.5 billion, and let's just talk about some C-malls. There's going to be some C-malls, which 
lost some space, but there's some sea moss who still look good, it's gonna lose space. So right. it's a combination, some came off, but there's some in there that it's, it's gonna come off. It's still gonna come off limiting supply. It's fantastic. All right, um, so keep going on this concept of the perspective of uh, this former CEO of a REIT. If, there, if uh, a retail real estate REIT came to you today, what would be, and said, hey Glenn, given the market conditions today, what are three pieces of advice you would give me? What, what would you tell them right now, given what's going on in the world? Well, you know, I would take the three pieces and segment them. From a, from a CEO standpoint, you're, you're always playing offense, but you're playing defense at times. And whether you like it or not today, you're gonna to play some defense because of the capital markets. So the first thing I would look at is the balance sheet. And when I, when I, I'm on a couple of boards, and as a board member, I get to talk to a CEO who may ask that question. And so what I would say is, think about your balance sheet, the left-hand side of the balance sheet and the right-hand side of the balance sheet. The left-hand side of the balance sheet, your assets, your properties. Keep your head down, make sure your properties stay full, you get the proper rents, put the appropriate capital in them, and they're ready and willing to go to the next level when the market gets better in some period of time from a capital market standpoint. So make sure your business is being run right. Now let's look at the right-hand side of the balance sheet. That's your debt. Watch that here. Don't let debt uh, over leverage you in any, in any situation where the capital markets are in disarray as they are right now because you can get stuck. No matter how well you do on the left-hand side, if you don't run the right-hand side correctly, you're gonna lose the left-hand side. So watch your debt levels. In, in public, we call it net debt to EBITDA, which is a ratio. Public companies run anywhere from four and a half to five and a half net debt to EBITDA. If you see it getting to six, seven and a half percent, you better do something about it. You're not gonna live well. And if you're a private company, and all of a sudden you have debt coming due and you're not watching what's coming due and how to refinance it, maybe you have to sell some assets on the left-hand side to take care of the right-hand side. So make sure your balance sheet, left and right, is appropriate for the market you're in. This would be my first concept. The second, is when you're CEO, you need to understand your constituency. Who, who are your constituencies? And there are, in my view, three. Uh, if you're a public company, it's your shareholders and debt holders. And if you're a private company, it's your capital providers. That's a, that's a constituency that you, you better be dealing with. Number two are your uh, tenants. If your tenants are unhappy, you've got a problem. So make sure your tenants are happy, understand what their needs and desires are, and keep them appropriately advised to what's going on. And number three, maybe the most important, your employees. If your employees, especially in a, mar a difficult market, are always thinking about, am I gonna get paid tomorrow? What's going on? You know, I read about interest rates going to seven and a half. Um, uh, I read about e uh, political issues. Make sure those three constituencies are taken care of. Um, and you take care of them by making sure you give them the appropriate information, you don't hide anything, you become transparent, and you're disciplined about that. And if all three, trans if all three of your constituencies are a little unhappy, that's okay. But if any one of those constituencies, your shareholders, your tenants, or your employees are very unhappy, as a CEO, you, you're in trouble. So I would break it up into those pieces, balance sheet and constituencies, in terms of how I would handle discussions. That's, that's a great answer. Um, so you mentioned, you mentioned the capital markets. I think, you know, going into there, and I think one of the more interesting things that we've had in the capital markets that's impacted a, a lot of members of ICSC as, as well as just the markets have been all the mergers and acquisitions we've been seeing in the public markets. And you've been involved in a merger and acquisition before. Um, what, how do you think about this? You know, we're seeing groups like, you know, Kimco who bought Weingarten and, and now announced they're buying RPT and Regency purchased Erstat Biddle and before that Kite and RPAI and Simon and Talman. Um, first off, I think, wh why is this all happening right now? There's so much of this in the previous decades there weren't. So why don't we start there? Why is this all happening? Well, m and is, uh, 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 a difficult concept at times because it's a good point, Chris. It's happening now. It doesn't happen all the time. And what 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 starts that process, and more importantly, what ends it? I would tell you if there anybody from an investment banking firm in here today. 
Because if you were to ask an investment banker in terms of M&A, what's the most important part of M&A? They say 70% is social, which means 70% is the CEO and the board not wanting to get taken over, right? Uh, not a good reason, not, not a good reason at all. But, but that's what, a, that's what a, a, someone told you the truth from an from a investment bank would, would tell you. I think there are a few reasons that M&A occurs, and then there are certain situations where they occur. I'll start with what, what I, I've been involved with. I went to a public company in 2000 called New Plan Excel Realty Trust. Does anybody remember that company? Uh, it, you know, they, they did a merger in, in uh, 1999, and you know, I, I maybe call it the worst merger in the history of man. It was just terrible. It was New Plan, they merged with a company called Excel. The, uh, the, the top echelon didn't get along. All the Excel people left, the seniors left. New plan, trying to understand a billion or two of real estate. And their stock went from 23 to 12 pretty quickly because they missed guidance. Uh, so that was a situation, that was the first time where the, I had a call, I was asked if I wanted to be CEO, and for certain reasons I, I said yes. And, and so I got involved in a troubled company. It was a troubled company. We, we turned it around. Uh, we had 10,500 apartments, we had 350 shopping centers, we had a bunch of stuff, we had some land, we had some office building. We cleaned it all up, we sold everything except the shopping centers, we reinvested in the shopping centers, and, and we merged with a company called Centro. It was actually a purchase. Centro was, a, anybody here of Centro Properties from Australia? It was a big, large company there, it had about 22 million square feet there. We were 100 million square feet here at the time. And so they bought us. And they bought us in April of 2007. And, and so what, what, what I learned at, at New Plan, the reason we sold New Plan, even though that was a good time to sell, we weren't that smart. We sold it because when you start out as an underperforming company like New Plan was, the market takes a very, very long time before it gives you the appropriate valuation. It penalizes you for years and years and years because you fell from grace, because it doesn't trust you no matter how much you tell them. And in 2005 and six, for those of you who are around, the markets were going like this. And you know, people were expecting what we would use as an earning index, FFO, to grow at like eight and 10%. There's no way we can grow at eight or 10% to take those risks. We were being, we were, our, our multiple was lower than our peer group. So we sold. That story I just told you can, I can tell you with Centro, because we sold Centro, uh, which, which fell from grace. Cushman and Wakefield was having a bunch of trouble when I, I got there in 2010. We kind of turned it around, but Cushman was a, it was a hard company at the time. We needed some, some change, especially in terms of its portfolio of, of geographies. And we sold that because it, it didn't perform well compared to CBRE and JLL because it didn't have the magnitude of the uh, presence in uh, Asia and parts of South America. So there was a, an issue there. I think we solved it, we sold it. And the same thing happened with Bereet, which is the latest uh, sale uh, that occurred about, about a little more a year ago. I was with a company called Bereet, net leases. By the way, I'd rather have a 10,000 square foot net lease than this property, I think. It's, this is a really hard property to manage. So we, but with the same thing happened with, with Bereet. Bereet in 2014, the third quarter, put out uh, something called an 8K. An 8K is a public document that you have to provide to the public if something important happens to your business. Something very important happened to the business. And in that 8K, they said, in the first quarter of 2014, AFFO was overstated. In the second quarter of 2014, it was intentionally not brought to the public. <laughs> intentionally. Well, when something like that happens, Everything falls apart. The CEO, COO, CFO, CAO all went. The board went. Uh, the SEC, the DOJ uh, sued the company, and we had a class action suit. So I came in, in in 2015. It's just another demonstration of coming into a company that's troubled. We actually did a lot of good work and turned that company around, but we could not get the market to perceive that we were as good as our peer group. And uh, the, the, the way that manifest itself, we had a multiple. Multiple just means EBITDA times the multiple. Uh, we had a multiple of 13. Our peer group was trading at 15 to 17. 
a CEO in public life cannot live for long if its multiple is trading that lower than its peer group. So we had to merge. So the merger concept could come because a company can just not get what it believes is proper valuation in the public market. And someone's willing to pay you a premium over that, but it's not going to get you what you want, but it's better than you are. And so you're forced to think about a merger because it's the right thing to do for your shareholders. So that's one concept on merger, which I, I have found, unfortunately, for some of the companies we had to do. I think those are good uh, comparables with Kimco and Regency, you know, also buying Equity One and Ernst oh, yeah. Biddle. That's different. Those were all pretty good companies. I believe that those mergers occurred because it's a difficult market. It's hard to grow. I mean, in, in the public market, grow, 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 grow is all you ever hear. If you're not growing in the public market, you're, st you're standing still, you will not be there for long. Certainly the CEO won't be there for long. And so in order for retailers, retail, retail companies to grow, a way to grow because the cost of capital is very difficult is to merge with another company, save GNA, which automatically will help you, and perhaps you have some more clout in leasing because you have more properties, you have more geography, you have more depth. And I believe that's what happened with Kimco and Regency. They found ways to grow through merger. Now, they also, in every one of those deals I just mentioned, they were stock purchases, right? So that company didn't go to the market to sell stock. It didn't want to do that, right? Because they're trading below NAV and they're not going to sell stock at NAV. So that form of M&A that I just mentioned in this environment will only happen, only happen if it's currency for currency. And then the last form of merger that I, I, I've seen occur is when there's a management team that's no longer operating well or no longer exists at a company. And instead of trying to hire the management CEO and the team, they merge with someone else who has good management. There, in, in retail, that hasn't happened recently, but there's a company called HTA, Health, Health, uh, Health Trust of America, uh, who merged with HR, Healthcare Realty, Healthcare uh, HTA lost their CEO. They couldn't find another CEO. They were having difficulties. They brought HR in basically to, to, to take over the company. And so it's another reason for merger when management is stronger in one company and not in another, or maybe it doesn't exist at all in, in the other. So there are very, these various region, reasons for, for merger and acquisition. I think we'll see some more because of the second reason I mentioned. It may be the first. Yeah that companies, in order to grow, when you're not gonna issue stock and dilute your shareholders in the public market, they're gonna grow through m and Come on, everybody. Where, where are you gonna get insights like this? Come on. Uh, so that was fascinating. I feel like I just got my MBA in mergers and acquisitions and uh, from the former CEO, that's incredible. Our former CEO had no choice. <laughs> so, uh, isn't it great to actually have someone who was like leading the charge and doing that here, like for such a small group like this? I, I think it's fascinating. Um, so, we're getting into the capital markets now. Now we got we got to we talked about mergers and acquisitions. You know, the other thing on the other side, and the just the, the buying and selling of property and the cost of capital right now, like. I can't go anywhere and not hear about this. Um, so, if you, if you were advising someone in a you know in a in a either an acquisition role or a CEO uh, today about the capital markets, would you be talking to them about opportunities right now? Would you be talking to them about being careful? Would it be both? Give us some insights. Capital markets are pretty rough. I mean, that's, that's what's causing valuation issues. And you know, it's, it's across the board. It's not just real estate. Although real estate's getting impacted greatly, in my view. You know, just because just I'm a numbers person, to give you a sense why I, I know that's true. In 2022, uh, REITs were down 24, 25%. We were down 25% last year. We're, we were actually up this year 5 or 8% until about two months ago. Uh, we're down now 5%. Uh, so that's a 30% loss 
over the last couple of years doesn't feel good about public real estate. Now, if you look at the public markets, the S&P 500, the S&P 500 was down 18% last year, but it's up 14% this year. And so when, you, when, when you're an investor and you're looking at those simple stats, you're basically saying, boy, real estate's got, what's wrong with real estate? There's a real, there's a real problem, right? And, and the reason it gets in, in the public market hit so hard is because it's still considered a quasi-income instrument. You know, it doesn't consider growth. Where in the, the S&P 500, you can have ups and downs in the capital market, but if you see growth, you see GDP growth, you can take advantage of it. In the public market, the public shareholders don't think real estate can take advantage of that much growth. And so we, we get we penalized pretty hard. And that, those are just facts. I mean, you just, you know, so, so don't beat your head against the wall and think tomorrow your cost of capital in real estate is gonna get better, because it's not. So what you need to do is think about, actually what I said before, Husband your assets, make sure your assets are generating as much income as possible so you have internal capital, and make sure your balance sheet is in pretty good shape. And you want it to be in good shape, not only because you don't want to get hurt with refinancings, but opportunities could come. And I do think in retail, there will be some opportunities. One thing that did happen in retail, which is different from, from other property types, when, when the world went to hell in 2017, at least in my world, um, the cap rates, you, uh, really got, got beat up, and they never really came back like they did in industrial and multifamily. Industrial and multifamily cap rates were at three and a half at one point. I mean, that's just crazy, right? We never got that in real estate. So, you know, maybe we came from seven down to five and a half, six. And so real estate has never, I think, been fully priced because of some of the legacy issues people thought about. Moving forward today, I, I, I look at the public market, I would tell you the average public REIT, the strip shop, shop center REITs, cap rate is between seven and eight. And in the malls, it's somewhere between eight and a half and nine and a half. So let's put the malls over here because that's just Simon anyway. In, this, in the public market, I, I do believe is over penalizing strip shopping centers or open air shopping centers. And so if I, if I were running a business like you are, I'd be looking to see who's hurting who got hurt? Who has a refinancing they can't deal with? You know, who lost some tenants because they didn't know how to get new tenants in? Uh, I would actually go down to the state of Florida where insurance and real estate taxes are knocking the hell out of a lot of shopping center owners if you have two or three shopping centers. They are. I, they are. <laughs> they are. I, mean, I, I would just tell you real quick, I, I, I was uh, in Orlando and I was moderating a panel and I uh, on the panel was, was uh, 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 Kimco, um, Sprouts and Panda Express. And so I said, we're sitting here in Florida. I'm trying to buy a house in Florida. I can't afford it. <laughs> How are you running your businesses in Florida? Both Panda Express and Sprouts says, uh, insurance, which is the key issue. How are you dealing with insurance? They both said, we can't afford to buy insurance in Florida, we self-insure. Yeah. And I went to Kimco and I said, uh, what are you doing? They said, well, we have 500 shopping centers, so we can spread out our insurance across 500 shopping centers. And I said, and then, and then they looked at me and said, that's the opportunity in Florida. Go find, go find someone with three stores or three shopping centers who can't do what I just told you to do. So I think there are opportunities in certain states. I think there are going to be opportunities because debt is coming due in certain situations and people are going to have issues trying to pay off that debt. So I'd be husbanding my assets, watching my balance sheet, keep some dry powder, and I think over the next 24 months, somebody will have some opportunities that they'll take advantage of. Excellent. Yeah, we've, we've actually seen some assets that are, have been struggling to trade because of rising insurance costs, which is not something we've heard about much lately. It's pretty wild in Florida. It is really, I will tell you, it's confiscatory, some of the, the issues down there. Now, after I said all that, I said all that, uh, I then looked at Kimco and said, how's your shopping centers doing? So they're full and we don't have enough space. So, so people are still going there, they're still shopping. But I have to tell you, there's some, there's some issues. And I think there'll be more and more state issues in terms of having to raise taxes that's going to cause issues, cause problems. And if you're large, you could absorb them better than if you're small. Awesome. So we're going to move on from capital markets. But before we do, anyone have some questions for Glenn, this is uh, a pretty unique opportunity in a small group to be able to get some counsel from somebody like Glenn. So 
Anyone have any questions so far? Don't be shy. There you go. Dimitri. Seven and a half. Yeah, I, you know, if I go back in time, and, and I think about customer service, and I go back in time a lot more than most people here. It used to be someone comes into the store and you smile at them, right? That was customer service. Um, that's really changed dramatically, and, and I think for the better, for a lot of different reasons. I think Amazon has been helpful for the retail trade in, in that respect. Um, and so now you, you talk to retailers who are doing well, they, know, they want all the data they can have on their uh, on their clients. They want to know where they come from, when they shop, where they go in the store, where they move around the store. They really want to know everything about them so they know how to market to them. Um, they want to have a, everybody talks about the word experience, but they want them to have a good experience as they come in, not just have a smile. You know, you know give them a cup of coffee, say, how are you? Have someone who's personal with them. But as important as all of that is you have to have the ability in most cases, not all, to have an e-commerce form of service. You, know, you, need to, you need to provide that service so someone can have something sent to their house and, and picked up. In all of that bundle of services, which also includes having uh, for shopping center owners, making sure they have parking in front of the store so you can call up for the grocer and then they come and you put it in the car and you leave. You know, all those services are important and e-commerce is an important part of that. Our retailers have learned that. And, and the ones who have learned it, I'd say, and, and also had the capital to implement it, the resources to implement the services necessary to keep the tenants are here. The ones who could not, who didn't know that they need to provide those services or didn't have the resources to do it, they're gone. So I, I would say what happened in that 2017 where people said it's a tipping point, they, they forget the fact that tenants learn. It's not a tipping point. It's a point at which tenants have to learn how to do their businesses better or not exist. And I, I think most of our tenants are in relatively good shape relative to e-commerce. So at, at, uh, we had a trustees meeting in Minneapolis three weeks ago. Uh, e-commerce doesn't even come up as, an, as a, a concept that we have to talk about, that it, it's, it's gonna hurt their businesses. And, and it's different, you know, uh, TJ Maxx, maybe five or 8% of their business is e-commerce and Staples is 50%. So what's happened is the tenants have learned to understand what percentage of their business needs to be e-commerce for them to provide service to their, to their uh, uh, clientele. And I, I think that's happened. I, it's not that e-commerce is gonna go away or, or it's not important, but something's gonna change. I don't know what's gonna happen, but somebody's gonna change something else and it's gonna be new. But the pure e-commerce part of, of, of the business isn't, isn't going to strangulate the tenants as, as we seem today, at least, at least in, in my view. I just add to that, Dimitri. So a, a couple things. The, if you and I were to open up a t-shirt shop online, the cost of entry is cheaper than a physical store, but the cost to scale is significant. And so, I interviewed this uh, guy, Simeon Siegel, once, and he was like, outside of Amazon, na name me an e-commerce brand that has $500 million in sales in the United States. And, and the answer is there's very few because it's truly hard to scale without stores. And so any brand that wants to start to scale will have stores eventually. How long does that take for like every e-commerce to have stores? Who knows? There's obviously going to be some brands that are just going to stay small and stay online. But I think the moment you want to scale to have distribution everywhere, you're going to have to have stores. And, you know, a lot, as Glenn was mentioning, a lot of the retailers are having both. What the other thing a lot of the retailers are doing is fulfilling from store, right? Target talks about 95% from store. So I think, I personally think at least we're hearing that e-commerce is it's not the headwind, it's the tailwind. 
And I think that, you know, you mentioned customer acquisition cost and all those things are adding to it. But I think that's gone. I think it's pretty clear the jury's settled actually that like e-commerce isn't, you know, killing retail. It, it, it's just the opposite. So um, I think, I think, I think, you know, our CEO says all the time, it's actually physical retail saving e-commerce. I mean, you look at some of the e-commerce only brands like, you know, they, they are profitable this year, but like last year, Wayfair lost like $1.3 billion. Feels like a lot to me. I, I don't know. It feels like a lot of money. I, Etsy lost like 500 million. Like there's gotta be a different way and stores, stores are a big part of it. Yeah, it's a good point. I, I made a couple of points on uh, what we said. I was with, uh, I was talking to uh, the head of real estate for Coles. Uh, this was maybe a year and a half ago. Who and I was saying, what, how, how are things going? You know, in terms of e-commerce, because they always ask that question. He said, "Well, it, we we learned a le lesson in the pandemic. We closed a number of stores just after the pandemic, and the lesson we learned was in those markets we lost e-commerce sales because the store itself allowed people, first of all, uh, to to pick up and deliver at the store. It's also advertising the store it keeps people buying on the store." So it was important to have both bricks and mortar and e-commerce to maximize the margins in the business. The other uh, uh, numerical uh, exercise I'd go through is, where was e-commerce before and after the pandemic? And actually, ICSE has these numbers. Before, it was, it was to 12 to 14% of sales. It got to 21% of sales in 2020, which is the year no one went out. It's back down to 12 to 14 percent. So it, the, the numbers kind of tell us we've kind of come out and have a, a stabilizing condition. Any other questions so far? We won't go too much longer. Don't worry, we're boring you. But I think this is fascinating personally. Anyone else? Um, so I guess the you know. The really the, the the good news you mentioned about what's going on in the world is the you know on the retail real estate side is you know the fundamentals at the property level are you know have been so strong and so you know i think do you think this period of time of retail expansion is you know just a flash in a pan or have we like fixed the overstored in America enough that it's now, you know, this is the, a, a little bit more closer to the normal course of business because, you know, I think, you know, a lot of, you know, you look at the bed bath bankruptcy, so many stores got bought, bought by retailers. Retailers are find, finding it very hard to find space. Uh, landlords have finally, as you mentioned, got some pricing power back, um, which is, you know, probably healthy for the real estate. And, um, uh, you know, NOIs have grown across the board. Uh, so what can you say about this? First thing I'd say is, um, if you give a real estate person money, they'll build something, right? And that's what we have to fear. That's, that's what we have to fear. Um, if, we, if we're in, if I take your analogy, we're, we're in a, almost a stabilized situation, close to a stabilized situation, feeling pretty good with tenants and landlords and space. Uh, it will change. It's a question of how it will change. History tells us whatever goes up goes down, whatever goes down goes up. And we're in a pretty good spot now. The, the, the reason I have some confidence it will stay for a period of time is the capital markets and the cost of building. It used to be in the olden days, we'd build an open air shopping center for 150 bucks a foot. What is now what? A shopping center? Uh, you're going to be. I can tell you, like a freestanding Starbucks, like a thousand a foot. Yeah. So <laughs> yeah, shopping center is going to be three, four hundred. Three, four hundred bucks a foot. Now think about three or four hundred bucks a foot, and then go to your tenants and say, "I want to rent, so I have a reasonable return on three or four hundred bucks a foot." That's a hard sell. That's not an easy sell. And so that's why Bed Bath was. Everybody wanted to buy all the Bed Baths they can get because they got it at a lower basis, so he could rent it at, at a higher basis than the old tenant, but a lower basis than a new shopping center. Um, and so that, that's a good thing. You know, it'll help us recycle space. That's why we're recycling space, because it's a lower basis. You could do it, you could rent it for a lower rent. I like the fact that to build a center costs you so much, because it'll stop building a lot of centers. 
that will help that will help stabilize us for a while and i'm i'm you know i don't know how long that is but we'll we'll have to find out so i i feel pretty good because supply is in pretty good shape uh then you always have to go to the demand side of the equation and what everybody's worried about is recession right because what could hurt us on what could well all of a sudden people have stopped spending money tended to go bankrupt so the, you know, too much supply will hurt us. Bankruptcies will hurt us. Right now, I don't, you know, I don't know how everybody has a different view on this. And, and from day to day, it could change. But I don't see. I, there's a slowdown coming, right? The Fed, the Fed is saying slow down. So I'm going to raise rates until you slow down. It's got, we're going to slow down. The economy is going to slow down. But that doesn't mean it's a recession. Uh, I, I. Personally, don't feel we'll have a, a deep recession if we have a recession. And you've heard that, I'm sure, for some people. And you've heard some people who, who would say we have a deep recession. But I, I'll give you some reasons why I don't think we're going to go into a deep recession. First, I, I'm old enough to know what a deep recession is. <laughs> and most people here don't. You don't. You don't. You have no idea. You probably don't even know what inflation was before two years ago. Uh, so I'm going to go back to 1983, and, and, and I've, I've actually researched these numbers trying to understand what's going on. In 1983, inflation was about 6%. And it was actually higher than that for those who were around. It was up to 10, but by 83, it got down to 6. GDP was growing at negative 2, negative 2. Unemployment was 10%. And the 10-year Treasury was 10%. That's bad, right? That's recession. That's stagflation. That's really bad. So I say, okay, now where are we today? How do we compare to that? Well, this morning, inflation came out at 3.7, which is not great because people thought it was less, but it's a lot less than it was in 1983. GDP is projected to be about 1%, maybe 2%, so it's positive, it's not terrible. Unemployment is 3.8, and, and the 10-year the treasury as of this morning was 4.6. Those aren't terrible numbers compared to what real recession is. So it seems to me that unless those numbers change dramatically worse, we're not going to go into a deep recession. So if, 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 if I'm close, I think supply will stay reasonable for a while, and I don't think we'll go into a deep recession. Therefore, I think, I think retail will be reasonable, reasonably stabilized for a period of time. I love the direct answer, right? When you get people of, you know, Glenn's experience of they don't like, they don't always give you, you gotta like really beat around the bush to uh, get- Because I'm not an economist. There you go, you get a real direct answer. So uh, that's fascinating. So you mentioned tenants and we talked about uh, some of the e-commerce side, but I think something interesting from your vantage point in all your experience, give some insights about what are some things from tenants that you look for and you thought like, this is a tenant that I want to sign a lease with because I'm sure there were some along the way that you told your leasing teams, we're not doing a deal with them. Well, I'm, I'm probably at least recently going to have a different perspective because I was, we were in, Farid was in the net lease business, realty income. Does anybody know who realty income is? It's a pretty big public company. As a matter of fact, to show you how, how, netting, how net lease companies can grow, uh, we had single tenant net leases, 70% was retail. Uh, we were 17 billion. They were 33 billion. It was a 50. They are a 50 billion dollar company with triple net leases. That's pretty amazing, isn't it? Um, but when you're in that business and you're looking for tenants, which you really, first of all, credit is something because because the net lease business is really really equity financing. You know, so credit is is, is somewhat important. Um, so credit was was always a, a main understanding that we had to have. It, it could be publicly uh, uh, triple B, triple B minus, which is the highest investment grade, but you would know what it was. If it wasn't, we'd have to do really good insight, have insight. You know, we would sit down with the CFO, the CEO, try to understand the financials. So credit was always number one for with our tenants. Um, what we also cared about was that the tenant understood its business. Now that sounds different and, and maybe obnoxious because why should an owner tell their tenant what their business is? Well, we're not going to tell them what the business is, but we do have a sense that, and this gets back to e-commerce, which was a very important part of it. If, if, if a tenant's in a business and it's going to be 
competed against in service by e-commerce. And it doesn't recognize that it's going to be competed against, or it doesn't have the resources, because it's expensive to put in e-commerce, we would not buy it. We would make the, or it'd have to be a very juicy deal where the real estate was so good that if we could replace them, we could replace them pretty quickly. So understanding that the tenant understood its business and knew how to do business against the competitors was a very important part of our underwriting when, when we, we, we did net lease work. Now, if I were in a shopping center and you would know better, you're not, you're, the pizza guy is gonna be different, right? But, different. but you may want someone who, who makes pizza in a nice way and it's different and people all come to the shopping center because they like it. So, so a unique tenant, a local tenant that's unique could also be important. Awesome. Uh, very good insight. Obviously, uh, we all like credit tenants, but you, and you have to do some of the local deals. Um, okay. Uh, I'm, I'm looking at the clock here. We're running up a little bit against uh, some time, but I would love to take some questions for Glenn. We tried to cover some general stuff in the beginning and then the capital markets and uh, a couple of things on tenants. Um, who has some questions? can't be just Dimitri. Someone's going to have questions. I know most of you. I could call on you. Someone's got to, someone's got to believe. There we go. Oh, we got a, we got a couple. There's some stress in retail now. What what could it be next year? Uh, and, and, and I would tell you that it, it, some of the stress in retail, we haven't talked about this, uh, is not cons the consumer. The consumer seems to be acting pretty well so far. I think you do have to worry about the consumer next year if we go into a deeper recession. And, and again, it, we're going to have a slowdown. I mean, it, it, the Fed you know, it's going to maybe increase the rate another quarter point to five and a half to five and three quarters. And more importantly, it could keep it there for a year or more, at which point they're going to beat up this economy, right? If they beat it up too much, the consumer feels that, that that's something that every retailer that's at ICSC, it, it, we have any retailers here? No, I mean, every retailer is, is worrying about that, but they don't see, you know, it's not stopping them right now from store openings in, 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 in the right locations. Uh, I think a, a stress, though, that we, we should minimize is organized retail crime. Uh, and, and, you know, right now you, you're reading about it and, and uh, Target just closed nine stores, you know, across the country. and, and uh, Walmart closed four stores. And so there are some issues in organized retail crime that uh, we'll, we'll be thinking about in the, over the next couple of years. Uh, ICSC is spending a lot of time on this. Um, we, you know, we've, uh, uh, we were working in DC you know, through our PAC. Uh, there's, there's something called the Inform Act, Inform Retail Act that you may have read about that passed in Congress that uh, requires anyone who's selling large volumes over the internet to be able to prove where they bought them from so they can hopefully stop stealing and having people sell there. There's a bill before Congress called the Organized Retail Crime Bill, which is, which is intended to try to help localities to work with owners and provide capital for them to help for security purposes. And um, we also are working, there's a group in Gainesville that is, is specifically working on retail crime and ICSC has helped sponsoring that group to work with tenants and owners around the country to work together. So we, we are in the forefront at ICSC trying to get in front of what a, it's, it's a federal issue in some respects, but it's really a local issue. You know, it's, it's the local police and the local community and the owners and the tenants all working together. So I, there is some stress there. I think we're making some progress and I, and I, I think that progress will continue, but that's something we think about. Thank you, Rudy. John.
you see going on that's maybe early on and you're excited about or what's to come next for your platforms? Well, the, the part about the younger group, almost on iPhones all the time and all that stuff. You know, I, have, I have four grandkids. I, they are way smarter than I am on any of the machines that I have. I mean, they, they really, it's unbelievable how you give them an iPhone and they go, they're not afraid of it, it's their friend, it's their pal. And so we, and it's really the retailer and we have to watch, has to make sure as those clients come through, they're servicing those clients. I think that's 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 a plus and exciting as long as you know how to service them right, um, and that's it's inevitable. I mean that that, that that's inevitable. Um, I also think the configuration of shopping centers is, is is changing a bit, trying to make it more user friendly. I'm sure in your shopping center, Chris, you you have for the grocer and maybe for uh, some of the food vendors um, places that that people can drive in, drive out. Sure. And, and that you know that that convenience will keep people coming to as long as you provide it. Um, so I you know I don't think there's anything extraordinary I can tell you. I other than you're better asking a retailer because if you were to ask Lori Mahaho, who is the head of real estate for Target, she'd probably give you a 30-minute expose on everything they're excited about and how they're servicing their clientele. Um, and so from all, from the, we house them, right? What we do, all we do in life is house retailers. That's what we do. Uh, they better do their business right. And so I think watching how they do their business is the most interesting thing for me. Anyone else? The lone retailer? <laughs> oh, got retail. Very important, right? Holy moly. Uh, it's it's been it's been a big change there. It's a really good point. Uh, you know, it, it, entertainment. Now, just look at this. I mean, the stuff they have here is just astronomical. Now, this is not usual. You know, I, I don't think. But but uh, entertainment as, as part of the mix in a, in your shopping centers. Uh, you'll different type you. different type of entertainment. Different. But yes, I mean, there's going to be food. It's going to be food. We'll, we'll have a theater. We have. You know, there's the the newer type of entertainments. Whether it's we just signed our first pickleball lease, uh, uh, you know, uh, trampoline parks, uh, things like that. So I think uh, you know we we we're not at the scale of water parks and Nickelodeon and uh, everything the ski slopes, um, but clearly you know the shopping, dining playing is merging more than it ever has. I remember a time when uh, in an open air shopping center, New Plan had many of those, Grocer Anchored, we wouldn't want a health club. Last thing we wanted was a health club because they took up too much space. You know, the people would come. Now, I mean, a health club is an important part uh, of all forms of retail. When I was in Minneapolis, no, I'm sorry. Uh, yeah, Minneapolis, uh, Dick's has a new prototype. 100,000 square foot. It's amazing, and, and it is it is entertainment. You're climbing walls, you're, you're going on fields to, to, to hit soccer balls and to hit softballs. Um, and so entertainment, keeping people excited about coming, whether it's sports oriented, movie oriented, or food oriented, uh, I think is here to stay. And I think it's a very, very positive part of how we're entertaining people. Anyone else? Um, you know, the, the, the no, it's, uh, first thing I would answer. So that, you said, what was the question? His question oh. was if Glenn was chasing uh, a retail property today and he was raising capital for that, what would he be chasing and why? The first way I think about it is I, I have an infrastructure in place that really knew that product. Because when you're going to an institutional investor, uh, you're, you're probably today going for an opportunistic form of acquisition. 
And you want to be able to, to prove to that institution that you have the capability, the infrastructure that knows how to manage, lease, redevelop that shopping center and take it because by the very nature, there's something wrong with it. Why are you better than the prior owner? Why can you do something with it? Because unless you can prove that to me, why should I give you a nickel? So I, I think having an infrastructure in place that knows how to create value is the most important part. Now it may be for a grocery anchored center, it may be for a more power oriented center. If you had infrastructure for both, that would, that would be terrific. So to me, it wouldn't necessarily be any one of those two or three. It would be, what can I do to make it better? And, and, and if I have a track record, that's really, that's really good. Great answer. Well, I think I think let me repeat the question. The question is, uh, first of all, sort of e-commerce uh, pickup and delivery trucks and it's very expensive. To your point. Um, and with high interest rates, and some, in some cases, it makes it not affordable. And so it, whether it's the companies you talked about that were only e-commerce yeah. and then recognized they had to have bricks and mortar, or it was in some other form, uh, it, that e-commerce company has to change, right? Because I mean, for, for years, we always wondered, how could Amazon do what they're doing? Because it was a loss leader. They were losing money on their retail division and making money on their computer division. Um, and so it, it's a very good point. You're not going to have e-commerce especially if the cost of e-commerce is higher, unless it makes profits. And it's either going to go away or it's going to combine, figure out a, a, a way to have a lower cost of capital or combine with bricks and mortar so that the combination creates a margin. But by itself, an e-commerce company that is not making money cannot exist for long, in my view. I, in the long run, one of the things I think on that is there's going to be two groups. There's going to be e-commerce that has stores or e-commerce that is serving the higher end only. Because, I mean, if I door dash like a cup of coffee to my house today, you know, it's $25 for a cup of coffee, right? There's only so many people that can afford that. And so I think over time, at the moment, they, you know, the whole plan has been to get to scale to bring that cost down. And that was under lower interest rates, lower oil prices, and all those things are rising. And it's really, it's, it's hard to fathom a place where those costs come down. And a lot, of the, a lot of the groups have said, we're not even gonna try anymore. We're gonna fulfill it from the store, or we're gonna open stores. Um, you have a group like Amazon who's decided to get in other businesses to subsidize it. But I, I think one of the challenges it may have is it might be, you know, you might start to see that convenience comes at a real premium and cost because they're not going to be able to take losses and it's going to serve a really specific demographic. And I think I'd answer that by saying we're going into a downturn. People are going to pull in their belts a little bit and they're, they're, they're going to cut back somewhat on, on what they're spending. And, and so whether it's e-commerce or retail, I think you need to recognize that. Anyone else? We'll take two more. Go ahead, Dimitri. That. By, by six places. Gotcha. Gotcha. Well, you know, it was, it's actually less fragmented than it was, but it still has some fragmentation. And then we, and it, it's the one, it's the folks you just mentioned. You know, it, it's, it's Simon, it's, it's Brookfield, it's Mace Rich, um, uh, Brookfield. Uh, who else? Westfield. Westfield. Westfield, which wasn't going to exist for very long. Uh, so there's three or four, right? We can't do anything about it. What we have done is we've stopped everybody else. You, two years ago, Tanger was off the floor. It's now on the floor. So what, what ICSE does is it, it 
blocks the it blocks every hotel from allowing anybody to put their position in that hotel during ICSC, except for those four because they were grandfathered in and we couldn't do anything about it. So if if you or some owner wanted to go off the floor into a hotel, you couldn't do it. We also any hotel that has that owns a restaurant, we don't allow any vendor to go into that restaurant to pitch their wares off the floor. So we put real strict provisions on the future. It's impossible, but we couldn't deal with the four that are out there right now. But we, we sympathize with that. And I'll tell you what, what I don't know anybody here from Simon or Administration, but we tell the tenants, go tell them that you're not gonna go. Get on the floor or else we're not gonna go see you. I'm not sure that's gonna work. One more. I, you know, I, I would say, I don't know anybody who isn't is interested in it because it's, it's, it's there, it's the future. And you, when you read it, it's going to destroy mankind and things like that. You know, it seems so apocalyptic that you just got to either know about it or ignore it. Right? But as a business person, you can't ignore it. Uh, so my, my sense is most tenants are thinking about it. Uh, owners are thinking about it. One thing I'd say is in, in real estate, we've, in, in technology, we've been behind other businesses for a very long time and we we even have problems doing projections you know trying to get your, your the information from your p l and, and, and your financials into a projection model which is silly you know prop tech is is what i think a lot of people have talked about to try to bring us into the 21st century uh, and so we're still we're still catching up i think most companies are thinking about artificial intelligence uh, I can tell you, I'm, I'm a director of a company called Ferropoint, F-A-R-O-P-O-I-N-T. Has anybody heard of Ferropoint? They own industrial, well, last mile industrial. And very bright, very bright people. Uh, it's an Israeli company, and they're, they're hurting of it now because of what's happened, but very bright people, and they are working hard on, on uh, AI. And what they're doing is they're trying to look at regions around the country because they're dealing with 50 to 100,000 square foot industrial and sometimes you don't have enough comparables so they're trying to find comparable regions around the country which could provide comparable information for rents and occupancies and they're actually doing it all with ai and ai is nothing more than taking huge amounts of information and and processing it better and quicker than we can in our mind is that's what i think about it so co companies will try to find ways to have advantages. And I would tell you that if you're a real estate company and you're probably and you're gonna go into an institutional investor or public shareholders, I'd say in the next three years, you better have an answer for that. <laughs> because every one of them is gonna say, well, I, I just went with this person over here and they told me they are putting an AI system in place which is gonna make them better than everybody in the world. Doesn't matter whether it's true or not. You better have an answer. So, so I, I, I rent, rent analysis, uh, comp analysis for different geographies, immense data is being put into place to try to figure out how to have intelligence that is better than just going to, uh, what's, the, what's the company that everybody buys? Co-Star. <laughs> better than going Co-Star, yeah, yeah. So it's very important. I don't know how, other than that specific, which is it's actually ongoing right now. Uh, I'm sure everybody's trying to do something. So, and then on our side, uh, what I would say is we're clearly paying attention. And I think with some new tech stuff like this, you know, we tend to lean more on efficiency and focus on the, what I would call the back end of the business first versus like something at the real estate level. The, at the real estate level, right, you, we've got heavy CapEx dollars. And that's what you're trying to put into that. And so, by example, simple one, we did purchase the the Microsoft ChatGPT integration, which will 
in all your team's meetings. It'll record everything for you so you don't have to take notes. And so it'll provide a transcript immediately and things like that. So for efficiency internally, we're certainly looking at it. Something that's like actually physically doing something to the real estate, oh, we're not there yet. Okay, Glenn, last question. You have grandkids. Would you recommend they get into this business? Depends. <laughs> no, the answer is uh, I would recommend. I mean, I love this business. I've been in this business for about fifty years. I fell in. I went to Rutgers. Me too. Around it. You at Rutgers? Uh, yeah, there was a couple people from Rutgers, and um, fell into the business after school and never fell out of it. And yeah, I would recommend. I think it's a great business. I think it has a great future. It's always changing. It's a people business. It's terrific. So the answer is absolutely. Awesome. Everybody, how about a round of applause for Glenn? Glenn, thank you so much for such unique insights. Thank you, everybody, for coming and uh, enjoy some uh, drinks and uh, networking. Thank you for listening to Retail Retold. If you want to share a story about a retail real estate deal that you were a part of on our show, please reach out to us at retailretold at DLC mgmt.com. This show highlights the stories behind the deals from all perspectives. So it doesn't matter if you are a retailer, broker, entrepreneur, architect, or an attorney. Also, don't forget to subscribe to Retail Retold so you don't miss out on next Thursday's episode.